Hey, this morning we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. And we're going to be addressing, uh, really taking a, a deliberate focus and intensity on the subject of divorce. And this is, seems to be what Paul is talking about here. He's moved off the subject of singleness is where he ended uh, the previous section. But as he moves to this section on divorce, recognize that, that almost all of us, uh, in fact, there's probably a rare person in here who is in not some way affected by divorce. Either you yourself have been divorced, your parents have been divorced, you have a friend or a family member who has been divorced. And so it's something that, that touches all of us, it touches all of our lives. Now, the, the tendency of the church for a long time was to find people who were divorced and to say that they were kind of cast aside and they were persona non grata. They weren't welcome, somehow they were unclean, and we just kind of grouped them as this this segment of people who were somehow deemed unworthy for integration into the larger body because of the issues they'd gone through, right? Now, this is what that communicates about the gospel, that there's a special class of sin that a person can engage in that makes them unworthy. So this is what that says about Jesus' sacrifice, effectively, that it's ineffective to combat and to deal with sin, you know, this seems to be a direct contradiction to what Paul has just said in, in 1 Corinthians 6. He ran through this list of, of really just egregious sins. He says the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. None of these folks get to inherit the kingdom of God. And everybody there said, well, what chance do I have? And then he says, well, exactly, that's the point of such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so effectively it's this, that when we class some special group of people and say the sin they've engaged in makes them uh, ill-fit to engage in the church, we misunderstand the grace of God, we misunderstand the gospel, which has made us all clean, Amen. So it makes us all clean, it makes us all whole, it makes us all a people worthy, not because we've lived lives unscathed, but because he has redeemed dead flesh. He's redeemed us, he's redeemed me. He redeems, perhaps, he redeems you today from your preoccupation to be seen as good and worthy. And he's leading you to believe that there is nothing good in you, that there's nothing, wor nothing worthy in you, but he makes you wonderful in the person and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And friends, that is the gospel, that God sent his son Jesus to die for dead men and women, sinful men and women. And in the power of the Spirit, he raised this deadness back to life, and it's our faith union with Jesus that makes us worthy. It's not that people look at us and say, we're a pretty good guy, we're a pretty good girl, we, we do the right thing most of the time. That is legalism, that is works-based salvation, and that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to the subject of divorce, we, we look at it, and, and the difficult thing is, is that what I want you to do is to recognize that Paul is addressing specifics in Corinth. Okay, when he writes this, he's not meaning to give them this broad statement on divorce that will catch every single scenario that they find themselves in, whereby if you're not in this really narrow teaching on divorce, then somehow you're in unredeemable, that somehow this, the Bible doesn't say anything to you. There are only a handful of places in the entirety of Scripture that address 
divorce. And within the New Testament, there are really just a few. There's, there's a passage in Mark, one in Matthew, or two in Matthew, one in Luke, and then this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So Paul addresses something that's very narrow. And so you might find yourself this morning saying, well, what about my situation? What about the divorce I went through? I have questions. Man, I would love to sit down and talk with you. Any of our pastors would love to sit down and talk with you and to share with you from God's word kind of what we think that the word is saying to you and, and what your life may look like moving forward. But for others of us, we're in this room and, and, and you've come to believe that your marriage is something that you have to stay in because you've been told over and over again that God hates divorce. And so you think that the only option for you is to stay in a relationship where you are under physical abuse, where you are under emotional abuse. And you say, look, I can't talk to anybody about this because if I tell them how he treats me, if I tell them how she treats me, they're going to think that somehow I'm doing something to deserve this, and I just, I just can't do that. I don't want to make them feel bad about themselves. There is no excuse for abuse. There is no reason to, to beat someone else, whether physically or emotionally. If this is your experience, if you are going through this, please come and speak to me or one of the other elders. We want to pray with you. We want to help you be safe. We want to intercede. We want to invest our lives in you so that you can be safe. We are not a church that condones abuse. We are not a church that will send you back into a situation where you are suffering abuse. If this is your reality, it is unacceptable. You did nothing to deserve it. You are loved. You are cherished. You are made in the image and the likeness of our God, and no one gets to treat you like that. Hear me say this. If you are abusing your spouse, it's wrong. You too are made in the image and the likeness of God, and I'm so angry with you right now. There is hope for you found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is not your spouse's fault. They are not evoking and bringing these emotions out of you, and they are not to be blamed. Come and talk to us. Come and see us. Please, I beg of you. It's always a fun way to begin a sermon. <laughs> you should hear the Mother's Day when we did last year. It was, it was a riot. All right, let me read the passage, and, and, and some of what I said will make more sense as we go through this. Uh, 10 through 16. Paul writes and says, uh, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? 
So Paul speaks to us broadly from two different groups of folks. We, on, on the one hand, we see uh, this, this Christian couple depicted. And so you have a Christian husband and a Christian wife. And then he's going to turn in the latter half of this verse, and he's going to speak to a situation whereby you have a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse. Now, within Paul's day, what he's likely talking about is uh, two lost people, and one of them receives the gospel of Jesus Christ, and now they have to figure out what that looks like in their marriage. So he's not talking about a lost person who enters into a relationship with a Christian. He's not talking about getting married and already being at odds with one another in terms of spirituality. He's talking instead about one partner coming to faith in the midst of their marriage. Well, let's start at the first one. Paul begins, he says, to the married I give this charge. And he has this really kind of confusing statement on the surface of it. He says, not I, but the Lord. Now in verse, tw- uh, verse 12, he's going to say, I, not the Lord. And so what's he getting at? Is Paul uh, in some way pausing inspiration? In essence, he's saying, look, this is what Jesus said, and it's really important, and you should listen to it. Now here in a couple of verses, I'm going to give you some wisdom. This just kind of folksy, homespun wisdom. And I-, I think it'd probably do you a solid if you'd pay attention to it. But Uh, you know, giving credit where credit's due, this didn't come from Jesus. This is just me trying to help make the best of a bad situation that you've put yourself in. Well, that would be creative. That would be creative. But it seems to me that what Paul is saying here when he says, not I, but the Lord, is me, he is making direct reference to the clear teaching of Jesus. Three times uh, within the gospels or four times within the gospels in three of the different gospels, Jesus spoke definitively on the subject of divorce. Uh, In Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 9, he spoke on the subject of divorce. In Matthew chapter 5, uh, within the context of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke on the subject of divorce, and he did so again in chapter 19. And then Luke has the shortest statement on it in Luke 16, 18. Jesus finally speaks on the subject of divorce. And so Paul isn't seeking to bring all of Jesus' teaching to bear on this, right? So Jesus spoke on divorce, and Paul's not seeking to bring all of that in. He's summarizing, in some sense, the teaching of Jesus, and he is directly answering the question of the Corinthians, which presumably the, the qualifications that Jesus gave for divorce uh, don't, don't weigh in as much. So if we look at Mark 2, uh, Mark 10, rather, verse 2, it says, The Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, if it, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And what did Moses command you? Uh, And so Jesus says, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed for a man to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then he offers this summary statement. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So if you're going to broadly kind of understand Jesus' statement on divorce, Jesus says, unless there is sexual immorality, unless there is sexual immorality, according to what he said there, there is no grounds for a biblical divorce. That's what Jesus says. And Paul's going to give us one more, uh, one more account of that. Now, this doesn't mean these are the only two legitimate grounds of divorce. This just means these are the questions that were being asked in the first century, and these are the things they spoke to. And so in terms of this, Jesus is, is being led into, they're trying to get him to side with one of two sides. One side that says divorce for any reason, and the other that takes a really narrow approach. But notice what he does. He takes them back to the ideal. He takes them back to the ideal. 
In essence, by asking them this question, why did Moses allow you to get a divorce? And they own up. Well, this is what he said. And Jesus says, it's because you're hard-hearted. It's because you're hard-hearted. It's because you're fallen that Moses provided this exception for you, this ability to divorce. But from the beginning, marriage was always supposed to be this one flesh union over the entirety of a lifetime. Now, how, how happy would that make all of us if divorce was not in existence? If we were able to only ever to marry one person and we were to be in wedded bliss over the t- entirety of our lives, wouldn't that be wonderful? But we have hard hearts. We find ourselves engaged in the same hard-heartedness that was alive and well in the first century. It's alive and well in the 21st century, and it was alive and well in the days of Moses. And so divorce exists. Divorce exists. But what Paul addresses here is this, in, in, in this first little section, is a couple that comes together, and we might refer to this as kind of a no-fault divorce scenario. He says, to the married, I give this charge. The wife should not separate from her husband. And then he ends it and he says, the husband should not divorce his wife. The situation, the scenario that he describes here is is a scenario where very much at, at home in Corinth, they could divorce for any reason. They could send them away for any reason in particular. And it wasn't due to the failing of one party or another. And so this church is gathered together, and they're trying to figure out, well, so this is what our society does. Our society, if they decide, I don't want to be married to him or her anymore, they just send the person away, and they're freely and, and, and able to do that. And so what does Paul do? He speaks directly to the question. He speaks directly to their circumstances. He speaks directly to their culture. And he says, do not separate. Do not separate. So he's not talking about sexual immorality. He's not talking about spousal abuse in this. He's depicting this couple that, that you've probably heard. They've had an okay marriage. But 10, 20, 30 years into the marriage, she comes in and she says, you know what? I just don't love him anymore. Somewhere along the line, we just became roommates. Somewhere along the line and, and taking kids to and from soccer practice and him working his job and me working my job and us caring for our parents, man, I just don't love him anymore. I think we're probably going to get a divorce. Or maybe it's the husband that comes in. He says, you know, she spent all of her time caring for the kids and, and, and not attending to my needs. And, and, and somewhere along about 12 years into it, I, I really began to feel what's a good word for this? I don't know, neglected. I guess I felt neglected, but then I felt selfish that I I would feel this way, and I really thought it would go away, but you know, now the kids are gone, and she doesn't have that excuse, and I'm not getting any of my needs met. I just think we're going to, she's going to hang it up. You don't hate her. I mean, she's a, she's a pretty swell old broad. She'd probably make somebody a great wife. She's just not making me much of a great wife. Do you call her a pretty great old broad to her face? And so in the idea of this, this no-fault divorce, notice that when we look at this, we fundamentally misunderstand marriage. If you look at your marriage, your investment in your spouse as a vehicle for your happiness, you will be disappointed. You'll be disappointed in your marriage, and fundamentally, over and over again, you'll be disappointed in your spouse. Your spouse does not exist to bring you happiness. 
Neither do you exist to bring your spouse happiness. The two of you have made a commitment. The picture that Jesus creates in recalling that Genesis 2.24 language is the two of you have become one flesh. The two of you have been united together. And it is the endeavor of your marriage to honor and glorify God. Now, it's decidedly difficult. Why? Because you're both sinners. You're both sinners. I would love to only conduct uh, weddings and marriages for sinless people, but thus far no one has responded that I've not found to be insane. And so you have sinful, selfish people, and they're doing the best they can, and they're going to irritate the snot out of one another. But over the long haul, your marriage is designed to be this sanctifying endeavor whereby your spouse is bringing out the sinfulness of your heart, the selfishness of your heart. Why? Because they want things their way, and you're bringing out the selfishness and the sinfulness of your heart. And this is how God has designed it. It's this wonderfully terrible, transforming enterprise whereby all of our ugly is being shown to the person we're closest to, right? It, is this, what? Come on now. Some of you are afraid to laugh. What if she knows I know that I'm terrible? She knows, and she's aware that you should be aware. Don't be ignorant. Own up to it. And so in this, he describes this scenario, and he says simply, do not do this. But he's acutely aware, just as you and I are, that many couples will find themselves in the pursuit of, of selfishness or whatever, getting divorced for no other reason than I don't want to be married any longer. And what is the word that we submit to them? What is the word that we, we challenge them with? Well, verse 11, he says, but if she does. Notice it's the offending party that he speaks to. She is the one who is separated from her husband. He is the one who has divorced his wife. So he doesn't go to the one that says, look, you didn't really do anything wrong, but he left you. He goes to the one who did the leaving. He says, you did the leaving, you separated, you divorced, and this is what God would call you to do next. You should either, one of two things, either remain unmarried on the surface of it, either remain unmarried or pursue reconciliation in your spouse. But do you notice the directionality of this? He's calling us for purposed, uh, being purposed singleness so that we might pursue remarriage to our spouse. This is what he's looking at here. So he says, in the course of your marriage, if it falls apart, not because someone has done something heinous that has violated the covenant of your marriage, but if it just falls apart, stay unmarried and allow God to do a work of healing and redemption in your heart so that you might be reconciled. There, there are few greater depictions of the gospel than this. A fractured relationship once again made whole. A fractured relationship where both parties kind of went their own way and then they were broken before the Lord and they came back. They exchanged their pursuit of selfishness. They pursued their own ends, their own gains, and they recognized they were all empty. This is such a hard word. Because by the time most people divorce, they've exchanged so many hurtful words. They, they've pitted themselves against one another with, with attorneys, and it is so incredibly difficult to bring them back together. And then we add in all their well-intentioned friends. 
He says, you go to your girlfriends and you say, he left me. And they say, he was always a dog and untrustworthy. Should we take our husbands and have them beat him as the unworthy low-down dog that he is? And when, when, the, when the wife begins to hear this, she begins to think, I was married to this guy who was a wretch. For 12 years, I shared a bed with him. For 20 years, I shared my heart with him. But you're right, this whole time, he's been nothing more than a dog. Let's go beat him. Can I come too? What does reconciliation look like for her? Everybody she knows speaks ill of the person that Scripture would call her to return to. And the same thing happens with a husband. He goes to his buddies and he says, Oh, I guess you know I dumped her. Yeah, I can spend lots of time with the Huntleys now. And like, dude, that is awesome. I bet you can be on a magazine. You just need to get back in shape. I mean, like, really, really need to be in shape if you think you're going to date again. But like, I mean, that's just so great. She was such a drain. She was such a nag. And she'd really let herself go, probably following your pattern. But, but really, it looked worse on her. He's like, you're right, I can do better. And he begins to, to, to lead himself down this line of thinking he deserves better. He deserves more. He deserves something other than the wife that he was made to be one with. We do our divorced friends a disservice when we rail against their former spouse. God is most pleased in the reconciliation of those that he has joined together. And we're working to continue to pull them apart when we invariably degrade the person they were formerly married to. Marriage takes a community effort. For us to be a pro-marriage group, we have to fight for the marriages of the people in this room. When we, when we sense some couple in our midst is struggling, we don't begin to kind of give them lawyers' numbers and say, this is who you need to call, and I get a discount. I get like, if I get like four referrals, I get, I, get a, I get a free deed out of this lawyer. If I ever get five referrals, I get a BMW. If they charge exorbitant rates, you should see them. A pro-marriage ethic requires all of us. It requires us as parents to speak to our kids about the high honor of marriage following Hebrews 13, 14. It requires that we talk to them and we praise our spouse to our kids. That we invite them to see the difficult nature of marriage so they don't enter into it with rose-colored glasses, not recognizing how difficult it would be. And it requires that we come around those who have encountered divorce and we rally behind them, both to support those who have entered into this kind of no-fault divorce and encourage them to leave room in their hearts to be reconciled and to come around those who have been vilified in their divorce. Their spouse cheated on them and their spouse actually was a dog, actually was a terrible person. They don't need to hear about how awful that person is. They need to hear about how much they're loved by this body and how much they're loved by Jesus. We can build them back up and help them to see their worth and their redemption in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what it is for us as a body to have a pro-marriage ethic. So Paul turns and he begins to address what was likely becoming a greater and greater problem there in Corinth. And it's a problem that you and I can find ourselves invariably entering into. If you share the gospel with any great frequency and you share it with, with, with grown-ups, not just children, you're going to find yourself at some point sharing the gospel and, God willing, seeing a man or a woman respond positively to the gospel. And in so doing, 
You're going to introduce this situation, this predicament in that marriage. You're going to have a lost person and a person who loves Jesus, and they're going to be in one house together. So you've created tension in their marriage. And so what does Paul say? He says, to the rest, not I, or he says, I, not the Lord, that if a brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Now, Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 says this, and so I just want to clear this up. In 6, 14, he gives this really clear instruction. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And so somebody could read that and say, look, I'm a Christian. My spouse isn't a Christian. I can't have close fellowship with them, so I'm going to divorce them so I can have better fellowship with God. Well, that's not what Paul is saying. And so he's offering a word of corrective. If, if you are a single person who is a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, the most kind of non-compromising thing that you can have in your spouse is not that they don't chew with their mouth open. The most uncompromising stance you must have is that this person's pursuit of Jesus challenges your own. That this person's pursuit of Jesus challenges your own. He's not just writing and saying, go find somebody that's a Christian out there. And as long as they say they love Jesus, go ahead and be with them. What he's talking about in this idea of being unequally yoked, we recognize there is gradation. There is kind of this level of, of spiritual maturity among believers, right? And so you're going to find somebody who is passionately pursuing Jesus in such a way that when you look at them, you think, that's what I want my walk to look like. That's what I want my life to resemble. Those are the priorities I want in my life. And, and Paul is giving us this indication that that's the person you pursue, that that's who you want to be with. You want to be with a person, not who you say, oh, they have this, you know, they're, they're a Christian and they go to church, you know, three Sundays out of the year. It's just amazing. But you want to pursue somebody whose own pursuit of Jesus challenges you. This is what he calls us to. So we have this sobering reality that even in marrying another Christian, we want to marry another Christian who is challenges us to conform to the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. But in this situation, we have this Christian and we have a non-Christian, we have a non-Christian, we have an unbeliever. And within this phraseology, he says, they consent to live with. He's not describing a difficult living arrangement. He's not describing somebody who begrudges your faith He's not describing somebody who is incessantly, constantly ridiculing your faith. He's writing about it in positive language. In essence, you could say that they hold not your faith against you. They're saying, look, you're a Christian, and that's okay for you, but it's not okay for me. It's not the life I want to live. And so what does he say if this is you and this is your reality? Simply this, do not divorce them. Spiritual differences between a husband and wife are not biblical grounds for divorce. So then he turns to the wife. He says, if any, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, he, or she should not divorce him. So now that the husband nor the wife should pursue divorce on the basis of a difference of faith. And he's going to give us two reasons with an exception in the middle. Notice that 14 is a reason and in the end of 15 is a reason but then 15 itself becomes the exception. 
So he has this teaching. He says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So in what sense are they holy? In what sense are they made holy? Well, Peter gives us some clue when he talks about it, uh, and he addresses wives. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, read in there, even if they are lost, they may be one, one to what? One to the gospel, without a word, by the conduct of their wives, when they see the respectful and pure conduct. This idea of, of being made holy is this. In essence, you are married to an unbeliever, okay? And so your unbeliever is made holy. They are set over here, and they are given a front row seat to your life. Everything you do, every moment you're together, they are able to inspect your life. They hear you testify to the gospel. They, they hear you communicate to your friends about the gospel. They see the way you spend your time and your money and the way you control yourself. And they're evaluating all of those things against your claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this idea of they are made holy is in essence, they are set apart for a special and privileged view of Christianity being worked out in the most intimate and delicate ways. And this is devastating. Because nobody can be on 24 hours a day. Nobody can live a life without failure. Every one of us sins. Every one of us falls short. Every one of us trips up, and every one of us, some of us more than others, lose our temper and lose our cool, and we dishonor the gospel of Jesus. But think about the difficulty of this. This man whose wife is an unbeliever, and he's living his life in everything he says, in everything he does, she is evaluating the claims of the gospel on his life by his behavior. It's so incredibly taxing. It's so incredibly exhausting. This is under the best of circumstances. What if perhaps her spouse, his spouse, is antagonistic towards the gospel? He or she begins to waffle, they begin to fail, they begin to struggle as every Christian will. And the unbelieving spouse sees that as weakness and they go after it. And they begin to desire to exploit that weakness so they might open up a separation between God and their spouse, invariably so that their spouse might grow closer to them. What does that take? Paul says, you can't leave your spouse. Just because there's a difference of faith, you can't leave your spouse. So it requires tremendous tenacity on the part of the believing spouse. And it requires terrific prayer intercession on our part. If you know someone who is engaged in this life, they live with an unbeliever, think about the tremendous difficulty of this environment. Every day they wake up and their spouse gets to evaluate whether or not they're going to be faithful to the gospel. They not, may not be a Christian, but they recognize failure and hypocrisy, and they begin to call their spouse on it. They don't get to divorce them. They honor God in their union to them. 
This is why we have to be so incredibly slow to choose the person we marry, to choose the person we will be vulnerable with. And if you are in this room and you find yourself married to an unbeliever, know that we are praying for you. Each of us should do our level best to intercede and to pray for these folks, recognizing the tremendous difficulty that they find themselves in. We pray for their ability to stand strong when we ourselves would be absolutely weak. We help them because they not only have to model it in front of their spouse, the text goes on, he says, perhaps your children are even made holy. So have to model it in front of their spouse and model it in front of their kids. Under the best of circumstances, where the unbelieving spouse fully supports, attends church, gives faithfully, is doing everything in every, every other way to give every guise of spirituality outside of submitting themselves to Jesus, even in that set of circumstances, it's still difficult. Because within the heart of the believing spouse is always going to be this tendency to move towards the thing they see, not the thing they don't. They have no ability to see God. John says, how do you say that you uh, hate your brother, but you love the God who you've never seen? This is an impossibility. It's the same incredible difficulty within this marriage, whereby we find ourselves not seeing God, feeling like God's distant and remote, but we see and we love and we desire our unbelieving spouse. And so the magnetism between the two of us is going to be pulling us towards them and away from God. We have to recognize that temptation. You're always on. There's always temptation. And you're going to feel incredibly alone. Can I tell you, as a church body, we have a special privilege to pray for folks that find themselves in this environment. And if you lead a grown man or woman to Jesus, or you lead someone to Jesus who is married, know this. You have committed yourself to invest your life with them so that they can faithfully walk out the mandates of the gospel in an incredibly difficult situation. So Paul goes on, he says, but, but let's say in the midst of this, they become so incredibly overbearing and so incredibly difficult that they say, I, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going to pack out you in Christianity. I just can't have it anymore. I'm gone. Paul offers this this. This difficult word, I think. Now, on paper, you and I read this, and if you're in a happy marriage, or you are a single, or you haven't even considered or contemplated marriage, you might think, well, I'm so glad they're gone. Life will be so much better for this person. But there's real hurt and there's real pain. This is a person they loved, and they likely went to bed each night praying for their salvation. And finally, their partners had enough and they pack out. And Paul offers this difficult teaching. He says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Now know this, it's not a mandate. It's not a command. But he goes on to say, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, meaning this, they are free to remarry. You've done nothing wrong. You followed Jesus and you did so faithfully. It is heartbreaking and devastating that you and your spouse separated. Paul says, let it be so. 
As a body, we've got to come around, as a body, we've got to come around those people to love on them and to care for them, to be an encouragement to them. And so that's the exception. But look at the other reason Paul calls them not to divorce. He has this odd statement. He says, God has called you to peace. Now, this is really kind of echoing a sentiment that he says in Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So the word for all of us is, in as much as you are able, be a peacemaker. In as much as you are able, don't seek to stir up, to stir up, to stir up, stir up sweet. I don't know what that's all about. <laughs> don't seek to stir up dissension. Don't always pick a fight. Within the context and the confines of a relationship where you have one believing and one unbelieving, this is likely what that looks like. Every single occasion you have, you are not beating them over, over the head with the gospel of Jesus. The picture we see there in 1 Peter 3 is living quietly and faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ. Over the course of your marriage, you will have opportunity to share but every waking moment is not an opportunity to tell your partner, you're going to hell, but you don't have to. You're going to hell, but you don't have to. Be a peacemaker. Live at peace in your home. For what purpose? Look at this last purpose he gives here. Why should you be at peace? Because he gives this hope and this desire. He says, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? And he turns to the husband and he says, how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? None of us do. None of us do. The hope of, every unbelieving, the hope of every believing spouse for their unbelieving mate is their salvation. They hope that God tarries. They hope that their spouse lives long enough for them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And they hope that God would help them to stay faithful so that they might each and every day show a vibrant and beautiful depiction of the gospel. None of us know. Just like none of us know whether any of our kids will come to faith in Jesus Christ. We can't possibly know that. But that does not mean that each and every day we don't seek to faithfully live the gospel, to communicate the gospel, and to call them to respond to the same. Marriage is such an incredibly difficult enterprise. It is difficult under the best of circumstances. Paul calls us as a people to recognize the divine purpose of marriage is not for our happiness, but it's so that we might beautifully depict the gospel of Jesus Christ so that in the purposes and the plan and the providence of God through marriage, we might be made holy and the gospel might be shown more beautiful. Let me pray for us. Pray for our marriages. Father God, we have marriages in this room right now. Um, they, they aren't civil. They are a struggle. And so this passage that talks about no fault divorce, they can find plenty of fault. Father, I pray that you would work in their hearts to create forgiveness. That you would heal wounds. 
Father, for some of us, we have gone through divorce and remarried. For whatever reason, we feel guilt. Father, I pray that for those, that that is their reality. Let's see the freedom and release in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you would call each of us to be faithful to you, faithful to walk out in our lives the realities and the commands of your word upon us. That our lives aren't meant to be lived in pursuit of our happiness, but of your fame and glory. So God, I just want to pray a, a prayer for our families, that you would make them strong. You would burden our hearts for one another. God, that you would help us to be a people full of compassion and kindness. Those who have been hurt and those who have hurt others, that we would be compassionate and loving, calling them to experience the warmth of the embrace of Jesus Christ. And Father, we submit these things to you in his name. Amen. Amen.